0: Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and we've got a great show for you today. I'm here with Todd Endelman, Professor Emeritus of History and Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. He's joining me to discuss his new book, Leaving the Jewish Fold Conversion and Radical Assimilation in Modern Jewish History, published. welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and we've got a great show for you today. I'm here with Todd Endelman, Professor Emeritus of History and Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. He's joining me to discuss his new book, Leaving the Jewish Fold, Conversion and Radical Assimilation in Modern Jewish History, published in 2015 by Princeton University Press. Todd, welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Um, Let's get started with the interview. As stated in the book's title, the book is about the process, or should I say processes, of radical assimilation and conversion in the past few centuries. What do you mean by these terms?
1: Well, conversion is fairly clear. It's Jews who uh, stopped being Jews by converting to Christianity were baptized. But I I really use also the term radical assimilation because it includes behavior of Jews who wanted to achieve essentially the same thing as Jews who converted. But for one reason or another, uh, baptism was not something they would consider. So radical assimilation can include uh, Jews who were indifferent to Judaism, equally indifferent to Christianity, winter married, and had no particular relationship to the Jewish community. So that they end up more or less in the same place. That is to say, they're outside the Jewish community, their children are not raised as Jews, they have no Jewish communal interests, philanthropic interests, or anything of that sort. But it also includes Jews who, for example, uh, were attracted to universalist uh, political movements of various kinds, radical political movements. This would include communism, but other of things as well. Um, and because for them, essentially they were embracing a, a ideology, an outlook, a belt whatever you want to call it, that allowed them to see the world or imagine a world in which being Jewish would no longer count as a category of definition. They were sort of outside of that. So it's really a book about Jews who did not want to be Jewish uh, and achieved that end through one means or another. Now, the means depended upon the societies in which they lived. Uh, for example, In Tsarist Russia, if a Jew did not want to be a Jew, uh, there really was only one way. Uh, One could become, uh, uh, follow the Bolsheviks, it's underground political activity, of course, but uh, it it meant that one was still classified as a Jew by the state. The only way to stop being a Jew was, in fact, to become a Christian, and many Jews took that uh, kind of uh, path out.
0: And how have previous scholars treated this topic of Jews leaving Judaism? And why was this the moment for you to really enter this conversation?
1: Well, if you look at, there are two ways. Either you would find, let's say, some of the classical Jewish historians like Heinrich Retz, for example, um, not just a negative, but a dismissive attitude. The people were traitors. Uh, they were, you know, fleeing the Jewish people, uh, they had no moral backbone, uh, they were weak, uh, they were timid, uh, they were craven, these kinds of things. And that, which, which may or may not have been true in some of the cases the people they're talking about, but it wasn't very helpful as a tool of historical analysis. It doesn't really tell you why these people are doing the way they are, and it clearly didn't describe it. That was one way of treating it. Another way of treating it was compiling, and there are a number of these collections, of anecdotal histories of famous converts. And very frequently they're written from the viewpoint of these were people who caved into pressures, but look at the interesting um, circumstances, and frequently frequently they were written, and most of these accounts are in Hebrew and Yiddish, uh, were written from the perspective of um, these people thought they might be able to escape their Jewishness, but they can't. They still remain, in a sense, bound to the Jewish people in one way or the other. And they would talk about such converts, for example, in St. Petersburg, who nonetheless get together on uh, Pesach for at least one Seder. So things of this sort. Uh, but ne- neither kind, whether it's this kind of uh, sentimental, anecdotal history, or the older condemnatory kind of history, um, is very helpful in explaining uh, why, under what circumstances. Because the thing that interested me was um, conversion is not a ra- was not a radical, uh, a, um, a, random scenario, a random phenomenon. Uh, it wasn't just distributed equally uh, throughout the population uh, of world humans. Uh, it occurred in larger numbers in certain times, in certain societies, among certain social milieu. And why it differed from one place to another is what interested me.
0: So before looking at some of these different places and those moments that you mm-hmm. say are important to understand, I'm wondering if you can give us an idea of what's important to know about conversion during the medieval and early modern period as a setup to what's then going to happen during the modern era.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, First of all, during the medieval and early modern period, there was only one way for a Jew to cease to be a Jew, and that was to become a Christian. Uh, And very frequently, Jews who converted to Christianity knew very little about Christianity when they converted. Uh, Poverty, persecution, um, sense of being totally bereft, to avoid expulsion, there are various motives, but very frequently the people who converted—it's not so much that they were attracted by the larger society and by Christianity in general, but they felt all these kinds of pressures on them, and it was a sort of a desperate act out. But there were, in theory, there was a clear distinction between Jew and Christian. I mean, Jews belonged to a semi-autonomous. Uh, legal community being a Jew was not a matter of uh, identification in the way that it is in modern societies. Uh, it was a legal status, and Jews were separated from the Christian population by that status. Uh, and for most Jews, it was this—you know—it was obviously not unbearable by any means. But some found it unbearable at all times and all. It wasn't just in 1492 or in 1497 or at the time of the Crusades, whatever. So that was the primary thing. It was a movement from a, one status to another status, legal, social, religious status, that was absolute. In the modern period, it's very different because Jews, most of the time when they converted, were already fairly well acculturated, uh, were already indifferent to Jewish communal ser- concerns, were somewhat deracinated, uh, cut off from the Jewish community other ways. Not, not in all cases, but it was, they they already since tasted um, the fruits of living in a larger society, but they wanted everything. And to say, they didn't want to continue to bear a stigmatized identity. They thought by becoming a Christian, they would get around that.
0: And you look at the modern period transnationally, and I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about some of the places that you incorporated into your study and why you decided to take a transnational approach instead of focusing on one or two different places. Okay,
1: well, I happen to believe that the comparative approach to Jewish history, the looking at Jewish communities in comparison with each other over a broad uh, you know, landscape is absolutely critical, because then you—that's the only way you know what is, so to speak, German or peculiar about German Jewish history, what is French about French Jewish history, et cetera, et cetera. You only know that by comparison. So that—that's the primary reason I did it. Now I looked at Western Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, and <clears throat> and the United States. Uh, there are Jews living elsewhere in the world. There were Jews in Australia. There were Jews in Latin America. Uh, there was a the South African Jewish community, but I didn't include Jews. Partly because there's very little, relatively little secondary literature, out there. and the conditions were very different. But I included the bulk of the Jewish communities. I didn't include Jews living under Islam, and there were instances of Jews who converted to Islam. Um, but it, it's, it's a totally different framework taking place outside Christian society, so I, I didn't venture into that.
0: So, moving into the modern period, how does Enlightenment both politically and perhaps socially present new opportunities and obstacles for Jews, and how does that maybe play out in different national contexts? Okay.
1: Well, I would I would uh, couple Enlightenment with emancipation. Okay. All right. So, talking about two movements, one the more rational view of the universe, which uh, in a sense uh, relegates uh, religious affiliation to being a relatively uh, Is not a determining factor for inclusion in society. And emancipation, which is the political working out of this, where Jews become equal citizens. And let's say sometime between 1750 and, depending on what you want to use, let's let's just say the end of the 19th century, Jews gained equal political rights in most European states. And this is also the period in which Enlightenment spread. Uh, Jews were optimistic. they assumed with the coming of enlightenment and emancipation, um, their Judaism would no longer be an obstacle to participation in the larger society. They would be regarded as not just equal citizens, but equally worthy citizens, uh, people who would be respected, Um, and that they would be able to participate in spheres of society uh, from which they had been previously excluded, and that their Jewishness would tend to be relegated to simply a portion of their lives, uh, so to speak. They would be very much like Germans who were Christians, uh, but they would go to their house of worship on Saturday instead of Sunday. That is to say that religion would be marginalized, it would be um, a part of their identity, not their whole identity. And this is what emancipation promised, uh, and enlightenment did to some extent as well. The problem was that almost nowhere was the promise of emancipation fully met, or the terms of emancipation exactly
2: what Jews thought it would be. Um, almost
1: everywhere where there was some sense of disappointment. Now, it varied from place to place. In some places, emancipation was slow in coming. So, for example, uh, within the German Empire, um, it's not until the adoption of the 1871 Constitution, Imperial Constitution, the Jews became equal citizens. Um, in the case of Tsarist Russia, it never happened. It was only with the Bolshevik Revolution, or the Russian, the first Russian Revolution, really uh, in 1917, that they became equal citizens. Um, in uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it was uh, delayed until 1867. But even in states, let's say, like England and France and the Netherlands, where the past, or even more the United States, where the path to citizenship was relatively easy, even in these instances, Jews found that they might be equal citizens, but nonetheless, being Jewish either still constituted a barrier to get entering certain activities, um, because there was still social discrimination, and even when there wasn't extensive social discrimination, there was still a kind of cultural stigmatization. So to be Jewish meant to be not just different, uh, because I think most of them were willing to live with the notion of being different, but being different in a negative way, in a kind of ranking or hierarchy where they were toward the bottom. And that's what most of them really found. the majority of Jews everywhere in the West could live with this. That is, you know, their primary, um, uh, their primary social circle was Jewish. Uh, they didn't care whether they were invited to, by non-Jews to dinner in their homes. Uh, they didn't want, or particularly desire, that their children marry non-Jews. And if non-Jews continue to stigmatize them by right Novels, let's say that portray Jews in unfortunate ways. It wasn't the wasn't the end of the world, but there were always in every society and in some groups individuals who found this intolerable. And in general, it was the more a Jew came to resemble the non-Jew, the more the Jew was talented, um, creative, well-mannered artistic, uh, prosperous. That is to say, the more he came or she came to fit whatever the ideal or the norm was in the non-Jewish world, the closer he or she came to that ideal, but nonetheless there still remained some barriers, the remaining barrier was intolerable. Because, it's, because in their mind, they were the equal, and yet there were things that still held them back. And particularly since these Jews were very frequently in the position where Judaism as a religion had lost most of its meaning. It's not very were interested in becoming Christians. These were Jews who became Christians, as they converted, to escape the onus of being Jewish. Uh, but they were Jews who did not go to synagogue, who became Christians who did not go to church. In other words, it was a change of their... They were stuck with a definition of Judaism that which, for which the only alternative was to become Christian in an increasingly secular society. It didn't make sense. But nonetheless, Christian society still demanded, I mean, in the sense that if you want to move in such and such social circle, if you want to become a full professor, uh, if you want to be a member of this club, if you want your daughter to marry my son, whatever the case, then you must be a Christian. Uh, Even though Christianity frequently didn't matter to these institutions, it was the only way of transforming Jews. Because it had been the only way for centuries.
0: I'm wondering um, how gender maybe played into this. Do you see men and women um, in the same society converting at equal rates, different rates? Did it depend on the national context?
1: Yeah, there, there are very there are very marked differences, um, and essentially, if you're looking for kind of general uh, rule, the more that women occupied. Let's call it a protected position within the Jewish family. They weren't employed in the, market, employed in the marketplace. Um, the extent to which they lived within family circles, the less likely they were to convert. Because they were not it was unlikely they were going to meet non Jews and find them as romantic partners. So that you find, for example, and mostly in the early decades of oh, this conversion wave, let's say starting, oh, let's say just at the end of the 18th century, majority, up through most of the 19th century, men are converting in a much larger rate. Because men are mixing more with non-Jews. Women are not. Women in general, unless they're very poor, uh, but certainly middle-class Jewish women, live What we would call homebound lives. Okay. They might be helping out in a family firm, but they're still, they're not integrating into a commercial culture that's Jewish and non-Jewish. Okay. They're very, still relatively isolated. But once, for various reasons, for example, Jewish women from lower middle class families, uh, begin entering professions, not, or occupations, better word, um, that are opening up, teaching, clerks of various kinds, retail, um, these secretaries, these kinds of things opening up. As society becomes more bureaucratized, more industrialized, there are more of these positions opening up. They're moving into non-Jewish environments, which they work for a big, doesn't matter what, it could be an insurance company, it could be anything. They're going to mix with non-Jews. And inevitably, boy meets girl, girl meets boy, and they will intermarry and so the more that Jewish women, so to speak, behave like Jewish men, as face the same temptations, receive college educations, whatever, the more they will convert like Jewish men, and the rates will become similar. Now that will vary from country to country depending upon socioeconomic status of Jews, whatever.
0: And do you see any kind of rupture or turning point in the late 19th century going into the 20th? What do we see happening after most um, European nations at that point do have formal emancipation? Yeah. Um, there is at least on paper, theoretically some modicum yeah. of equality. What happens then?
1: Um, the rates of conversion, there are various ways of measuring rates of conversion. I won't go into it because it's it's complicated. Right? Um, Fair enough. And And, and ultimately, no statistics are are hundred percent satisfactory for various complicated reasons. Um, what happens is that from the eighteen seventies, measured by any standard, there's an extraordinary increase in conversion, particularly in large cities of Europe. Um, it's more marked in a place like Berlin or Vienna. Than it would be in Amsterdam or London or Paris, um, but that that said, this increase is, occurs everywhere to some extent or another. In part, one could say that rates of conversion are a pretty good measure of the extent of anti-Semitism in society, in the sense that Jew not not just anti-Semitism of a uh, verbal or cultural kind, but anti-Semitism operating both the social and the occupational level. Um, And everywhere you can see a a tremendous increase uh, in the rates of conversion from the 1870s. Now, it's not just due alone to increasing anti-Semitism. It also tells you something about the Jewish community. It's part that Jews themselves are becoming more acculturated. That is, more German, more French, more Dutch, whatever. It's also that their aspirations are rising. Now, in the year 1800, like 70 years earlier, uh, most Jews in Europe as a whole were impoverished. They were involved in marginal street occupations, particularly in the secondhand, uh, secondhand clothing business, other kinds of secondhand goods, peddling uh, throughout the countryside, hawking goods within the city, all kinds of various things like this. People in this position, um, particularly relatively recently, in some cases not yet even yet emancipated, are not potential converts. Okay? By 1870, the Jewish population, at least in Western and Central Europe, and particularly in the big cities in Central Budapest, Vienna, etc., were really becoming middle class, moving into upper middle class. They were becoming more highly acculturated. And so there was their aspirations had changed. There was a rise in their aspirations. It was the same process described before. So at the same time as anti-Semitism is increasing, you have Jews, in a sense, less resistant to its attacks. Because they want more. Because they are more and more similar to those people whom they are using as their reference group. And hence, they're more likely. And also, they're more secularized as well. Because secularization is a precondition, almost, of this kind of conversion that we're talking about. Uh, For most Jews, it was not a wrenching emotional experience. Um, It was, as some of them said, A question of putting on the proper clothing, proper garb, and it just—it didn't mean anything. And in many countries, it was a farce. It could take all kinds of farcical standards. Uh,
2: I mean, for example, in Vienna, an ambitious Jew
1: who, for economic or social reasons, wanted to convert most likely would become a Protestant. Not a Catholic. Now, on the face of it, that doesn't make sense. If Austria was a Catholic country. There were Protestants there, but a tiny minority. Why would they become Protestants? Because Protestant ministers, particularly in Catholic countries, I used to sometimes say, would baptize anything on two feet. Uh, they required practically nothing. It was a farce. It, it, it was a, it was farcical from the viewpoint of Christianity. Whereas Catholics were The priests in Catholic countries are much more serious. In Russia, you had the same thing. Um, and there were, and at this time, I'll give you an example. Finland was part of the Russian uh, Tsarist Empire. And there were Protestant ministers in Finnish cities who profited from the fees they charged converting Jews. They would just, Jews would show up, they would Sometimes they wouldn't even literally be baptized. They'd just get a certificate from these Protestant uh clergymen, and then return to Russia and say, see, I'm a Protestant. And once you're a Protestant, you're a Christian.
0: So it was and, transactional.
1: Yeah, somewhat, entirely. Uh, the <laughs> most famous person who had this kind of um, a conversion was the Russian poet, Osip Mandelstrom, who was having these pretty conversions. But it wasn't everywhere. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't... It wasn't true of all Protestant conversions, but it was in many places. It was much easier.
0: So let's move on to the years um, with the Nazis' rise to power in the 1930s going into the events of World War II and the Holocaust, the immediate aftermath. Um, How does conversion and radical assimilation play in here? Do more people adopt this as a strategy? Are we seeing a, a drop in conversion during this time? What's happening in Europe?
1: In theory,
2: one would have thought the conversion would drop
1: with the rise of racial antisemitism. Because one of the bedrock belief of racial anti Semitism is that the Jews' problem is not his religion, but his very essence, his race. And you can't change a race, according to racial
2: thinking, through conversion. Either
1: Jews were not paying attention. I don't think that was true. Or they minimized the importance of racial thinking. Or they didn't think through all the implications of it. Because the rise of racial anti-Semitism, already beginning in the 1870s, does not mark in any way a decline. And one of the more bizarre and tragic aspects of the whole history of is that in Germany after nineteen thirty three, for a while Jews continued to convert to Christianity? The same thing happened in Vienna. And even after the uh Anschluss, the the Nazi force German force takeover of Austria uh, in thirty eight, uh, Jews continued to convert. Now, sometimes there was if you will, a rational reason for doing so. That is, they thought it would be easy to get a visa out of the country to somewhere in Latin America, for example, if they were Christian. But that wasn't the dominant thing. Because in fact, you people have traced, and I use these, this material, you can study conversion, at least in Germany in this period, in the 1930s, on a month-by-month basis. And it's clear at certain key points in 1933 when the Nazis first come to power in 1935 the months of the Nuremberg laws and after November 38 after Kristallnacht Jews are rushing so to speak to the baptismal font we also know that the same thing happened in Hungary that is uh, the Nazis don't occupy Hungary because Hungary is allied to Germany until relatively late in the war but before and even as occupation occurs, Jews are converting at very high. Budapest, during the war years, had the highest conversion rate of anywhere, very large numbers. Even though it didn't make sense. Now, part of it was what other alternative was there? When people are desperate, they'll use any option that's open. The strange thing is, and I just saw another example of it today, uh, reading on Tablet this morning, of Jews who survived the Holocaust, who end up settling in the West, in France, in Canada, in the United States, and in Great Britain, who then convert and try to just forget everything. That is to say, I'm not going to risk being Jewish again. I've been so thoroughly traumatized, and I certainly don't want to have that to my children. Even though, by racial definitions, now these people may be hooked, past and no one would notice or whatever. But uh, the history doesn't end then. So that there's a long after history, so to speak, or post-Holocaust history uh, of the history of conversion. Now, what's decisive is that sometime in the 1960s, Jewishness, first in the United States and then in other Western people, begins to lose some of its Ceases to be a stigmatized identity in the way it ends. And conversion rates begin to plummet. You don't find it very happy. And now in the United States, perhaps more than anywhere, uh, non Jews will convert to Christianity, uh, which never happened, or rarely happened before the Second World War. But that, which tells you something about both the integration of Jews into American society. And the extent to which Jewishness is no longer a stigmatized identity.
0: Let me ask you another question about American Jewry mm-hmm. in the post war period. Yeah. You mentioned or you introduced this idea of drifting away from Judaism instead of defecting from Judaism as another yeah. strategy of radical assimilation. Mm-hmm. Can you say a bit more about what drifting is and how it's relevant in the years after yeah. the 1940s?
1: Um, in Britain uh, aside, in most European states, you could not drift away from Judaism. France would be another exception. Because being Jewish meant being a member of the Jewish community and one had to belong to a religious community. Um, So that there was no drift. However, in societies in which um, religious categories were not part of one's civil identity, such as the United States, such as Greek written, it's possible to be a nothing. And lots of Jews became nothings in the sense that they ceased to have much to do with Judaism. They intermarried, but they didn't put a lot of effort into it because society as a whole was not particularly interested in whether they were, might be interested, but didn't care particularly whether they were Jewish or non jewish And so they could simply drift away and become nothing. And and most of the decline in the Jewish population, whether the American Jewish population is declining or not, demographically, depends on how you define what is Jewish. So, And that's another debate. (laughs) And and I would argue even, even no matter what any sociologist says, they don't know. Because what really depends is what happens two, three generations down. And none of us are prophets or seers, uh, so we can't know that. Um, but clearly, the major uh, force sapping, if you will, demographically, the Jewish community is Jews who just, you know, they don't become Christians. They become kind of nothings the way it's very easy to be a nothing in the United States or a mixture of things, but it ceases to be a basic part of what. Uh, and I think that, that this happened more extensively in the United States uh, than elsewhere. Although European society, American society, is still a very religious society, but that that varies according to class and region. Uh, it's not true, for example, in New York or Boston or whatever. Um, it, anyway, so the, in America, certain urban societies really it's easy to be another, and in France, certainly. Uh, And in Great Britain today, and in the Netherlands.
0: Um, I do want to bring up one more um, really illuminating point of your study, and that you also really take seriously those who did seem to sincerely adopt Christianity. but you also note that even these let's call them true believers if you will mm-hmm. um, weren't necessarily divorced from the social and political realities of their day and mm-hmm. you bring up in particular one very well known example um, Edith Stein. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you can say a bit more about her and how you contextualize her into broader patterns yeah. about conversion.
1: Well let me, let me first before I speak specifically about Edith Klein let me just say the phenomenon in general mm-hmm. any Jew who became a Christian in a Christian society, had already been influenced long before his or her conversion by the Christian view of Judaism. So in some sense, whatever they said they experienced had already been shaped by anti-Semitism, by a negative view of Judaism, theologically negative. Uh, and it's not surprising that someone like Edith Stein, um, who
2: was on the whole relatively ignorant of Judaism, um, but became a believing Christian. She was what
1: I would call a seeker, a searcher, but it was almost, I won't say natural, but it was, it was not surprising that she found it in Christianity because in a sense she had come to see Judaism already through Christian eyes, long before she became a Christian, and that's what I mean. How the political atmosphere shaped um, the way in which these Christians now, in every every uh, 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 to use a term from psychoanalysis, every conversion is overdetermined. Okay, so that in her case,
2: however much she ended up a true believer,
1: her path from Judaism or a nominal Jewishness to a believing Catholicism was not shaped just by an understanding of Catholicism which he acquired uh, by reading or through personal visions or thought. There were many things, a very rocky uh, series of romantic entanglement, uh, romanticals entanglement. Of romances, uh, an inability to get a job teaching, both because she was a woman and she was a Jew, um, that pushed her in a certain way. And that was true of
2: most uh conversions of conviction.
1: Uh, if you take the Lustiger, the former uh, Archbishop of Paris and Cardinal Lustiger, he was converted during World War II while being sheltered. Uh, from the Nazis, and separated from his parents. Uh, had he not been in those circumstances, he wouldn't have become a Christian. He might have been a secular Jew, but he wouldn't have become a Catholic. So, in every case, all, almost every one
2: of the formal cases, um, and, and
1: the other thing, one of the things that I argue, is that 90% of the Jews who became Christians did so for non-religious reasons. Uh, It wasn't because they read the New Testament. It wasn't because they attended conversionary sermons. It wasn't because they studied scripture and thought about it at great length. It wasn't because uh, they had a vision. Uh, It wasn't because they came under the influence of a charismatic preacher alone. It was much, much more complex. Uh, You know, that wasn't why they those who di- and those who did become the ten percent, five percent, we have no idea, uh, but it's clearly a minority. Um I quote all kinds of statements by observers at the time that they've never seen to have been
2: from uh for
1: sincere reasons. Uh, there probably were some, they're probably overstating the case. But in any case, they uh, you know they were all overdetermined. There were many, many factors.
0: Excellent. That Actually, we are out of time. So Todd, thank you again so much for coming today and being on the show. Again, please check out Leaving the Jewish Fold: Conversion and Radical Assimilation in Modern Jewish History by Todd Endelman, published in 2015 by Princeton University Press. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.